Hey, welcome. My name is Glenn Lundy. Super excited to be launching our new Breakfast with Champions podcast. Can you believe it? That's right. The Breakfast with Champions podcast has finally arrived. This is your opportunity to get motivation, education, and inspiration every single day. And ultimately, your opportunity to get a seat at the table, to be a fly on the wall, to listen in to some conversations between some of the most amazing superhumans from around the planet. We're talking about people that are doing the things you know you can do, that have reached some of those levels you know you can reach. We've got celebrity interviews with people like Tiffany Haddish and Grant Cardone, Lauren Rittiger. We've got specialists in areas like Capital Ventures, right? Or wealth building, wealth management, real estate, all kinds of incredible conversations. And what's amazing about the Breakfast with Champions podcast is you're going to be able to tune in, listen in. They won't even know you're there, right? It's just like you're, you're, you're listening in on all these incredible secrets of some of the most successful humans from all around the world. You know, when we launched Breakfast with Champions, we had no idea of the power that it was gonna have. We had no idea of the collaborations it would create. We had no idea that we'd be able to connect humans from England and Australia and Saigon and America, of course, all together in one room having powerful conversations that elevate everyone in the experience. Listen, if you like these episodes of Breakfast with Champions, do me a huge favor and let us know. We would greatly appreciate it. We pour into this. You're going to get five to six hours of content every single day, Monday through Friday, five days a week. You can keep coming back. So make sure you subscribe to the podcast. We'd appreciate it. Drop your comments, share your thoughts and your reviews. It mean the world to us if you would do that. And in exchange, we promise you that we will always create a space, a safe space where you can come. You're not going to get politics here. It's not going to happen. You'll never see any type of division in here. It's actually exactly the opposite. We have a bunch of different people with different belief systems, different upbringing, different backgrounds. We've got people from all different ethnicities all coming together. But the one thing that we share is everyone in this room shares the same heart. And it is a heart to elevate you, to encourage you, to inspire you, and to help you become the absolute best version of yourself that you can possibly be. So if you would, do us a favor, write those reviews, subscribe to the podcast, tell your friends. We're going to be here, and we hope that you will be too. Enjoy Breakfast with Champions. You'll see there in the notes that you can skip forward. You can move back. If you need to pause it for a minute, you'll now have that opportunity to do so. We do record these daily on Clubhouse. We have a Breakfast with Champions Club there, or you can follow me, Glenn Lundy, if you'd like to see those rooms, if that's an app that you enjoy. You can always come in and tune in live, or of course, just sit back and enjoy right here on the podcast and anywhere your podcast can be found. It is such an honor and a privilege to be able to spend this time with you. I know that there are a trillion places you could have chose to be. You chose to be right here with us on Breakfast with Champions, and that means the world to me, and I absolutely stinking love you for it. So with that said, we are excited to launch the new Breakfast with Champions podcast. Thanks so much. Good, good, good. So you guys, welcome to Breakfast with Champions. I have a very special guest today. If you guys wouldn't mind, would you drop yourselves into the audience so we can reboot the room a little bit? I'd really like him to sit next to me for this interview, and then I can bring you guys all back up. 
So just drop yourself back into the audience and then raise your hand immediately and I will bring you back up just so that we get the order of the room the way that I'd like to see it for this uh, for this segment today. Thank you so much. If I don't see you dropping yourselves into the audience, I will drop you. <laughs> and then you can bring yourselves back up and no, uh, no hard feelings attached. I just want this special guest to sit next to me right now and then we'll bring everybody back up. All right, so uh, is there anybody in, um, is there anybody, let me just pull up the, the, the uh, I'm gonna grab a couple of you and then I'm gonna ask you guys to help me with the, with the uh, moderating and everything and bringing yourselves back into a position where, let me get those of you who popped out back in again. I've got, I think I saw David Spivak and I saw Dr. Anise and Aria. All right, I'm gonna leave it to you guys now if you don't mind, Kate, um, to just deal with the rest of the room for me. Is that cool? You guys got it? On it. Yes, we got right, it. Cool. Thank you. All right. So this is a special day for me. I want to tell you guys that it took me about a month back and forth texting our guest today to get him to commit to be on a call with me and just get this whole thing moving. And this guy is super, super busy. And I'm just blessed that he is here on the stage with us. Um, my guest's name is Matthew. He's sitting right next to me. He was born and raised in Southern New Jersey and went to Brandeis University, returned to Philadelphia. I don't know if you guys know this because I was raised in Philadelphia. I was raised in, in, in Southern New Jersey too in Cherry Hill. And um, the Cherry Hill sits about six miles from the border of Philadelphia. So when I went back to school for law school at Rutgers Camden in New Jersey, I literally kind of lived underneath the bridge and was living in Philadelphia myself. Anyway, he returned to, 15, to Philadelphia 16 years ago and he began a career in financial, financial services with Morgan Stanley. And in 2006, he joined Smith Barney, which eventually merged with his alma mater. So some of you may know that, forming Morgan Stanley Smith Barney. I can't even speak this morning, sorry. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney. And he specializes in financial investment management for high net worth individuals and charitable organizations. In fact, he is such a charitable guy that and he has a, a massive love for philanthropy that he has logged in about 1,200 plus hours of community service in the last six years. And he's an endowment director for the SAM Fund, which is a young adult cancer uh, survivors fund in Boston. He flies as a transport pilot for Mercy airlifts angel flights. He's a pilot. He achieved rank of major with the Air Force Auxiliary and formerly served as a, a national search and rescue flight instructor. And due to his service in, in, um, to the musical community in Philadelphia, he was inducted into the Rock of, Fu Rock of Future Hall of Fame in 2019. And he sits on the board of directors of the Northeastern Regional Folk Alliance, as well as the board of directors for Weathervane Music. And he's been honored with the Crescendo Business Service Five Star Wealth Management Award. He's been published in Philadelphia Magazine the last 12 years of the last 13. And he, less than 0.5% of, of financial professionals in the greater Philadelphia and South Jersey region have earned this recognition for seven years. So this is a, the last seven years. So this is a big deal. This is a BFD. And he maintains that he shares this honor with his clients because it represents solid and constructive communication between client and advisor, which is what he really entrusts and, and, and progresses in. So I say this to you because this guy's a busy, busy guy and to have him in the room right now is a BFD. And I have the other special added privilege of announcing that he's my brother. <laughs> <laughs> 
And so would you guys open the mics and would you give Matthew Raymer, we call him Matt Raymer, a very warm welcome hey, brother. to Breakfast with Champions. Welcome, welcome. Yay, you guys welcome. on Breakfast with Champions. Woo. Woo. Welcome. Thanks, guys. Nice to meet you, brother. Well, thank you. Thanks, Hales, for having me. All right. I knew that you were going to come out and say that in the last fight, in the first, in the first sentence. So I was sitting downstairs this morning in my basement doing my meditation, and I was like, Matthew is going to come out with my nickname literally in the first <laughs> sentence, and not realize that he's done it, and now it's going to be public, and everyone in the world is going to know that as a child, and only my family calls me this. <laughs> Hell's above. <laughs> That's where it stems from. So just so you guys know, it's H-A-Y-L-Z-A-B-U-B, -B, which is the 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 Raymer family form of Beezlebub, which is the devil, which my dad named me, and then it got shortened to Hales. And it's not H-A-L-E-S, it's not H-A-L-S, it's H-A-Y-L-Z. So you're more than welcome to do it as long as you spell it correctly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I'm psyched to have you here today because I know that uh, I know that you're super busy. And I'm not kidding you guys. Like Matt and I had uh, a bunch of things that we wanted to chat about because he actually he actually manages my money. So he's been managing and investing and and uh, taking care of our retirement funds and our and all of our finances for uh, I don't know last 16 plus years or so. And I'm probably his poorest client. <laughs> <laughs> So he's doing me a favor, um, but he's he's a busy guy. And so, you know, we we live in different time zones. I'm either Pacific or Mountain. He's on Eastern. And so it was tricky. It was tricky to get on the phone with him. It was tricky to get him to commit. We actually had planned this over Thanksgiving to do together because we were in the Bahamas together and we were going to do the room together uh, from the app. And I just couldn't get any reception or any Wi-Fi or any, any, any data while I was there. So we just didn't do it. I gave the room to somebody else and it's been that tricky to get him back. So we want to talk to you guys about a bunch of things today. And if you have questions and you want to ask them something, we will leave some time at the end of the room. So just make sure you, you, you get to me some way or another, ideally like on Instagram through the DM, um, or you can try to use the airplane little module here. I don't usually get messages on the app, but sometimes I do when I'm in the room. I don't know. And just so that we can make sure that we save enough time because you're probably going to want to ask him some questions. And we're going to go all over the place with this conversation because I think that this isn't just a matter of like, how do I, you know, how do I invest in the next best, best thing right now? But it's also like, what the hell is going on in the world right now? And what kind of concerns should I be having? So Matt, the first question that I wanted to actually open up with is like, a lot of people are concerned about what's going on in Ukraine and in the economy. And before we get to that main topic, like, should people be concerned? Um, well, uh, it depends on if you're looking at it from a humanitarian standpoint or a finance standpoint. And I guess for most people, that's an obvious uh, first statement. But I definitely want to say this out loud. Um, while I may discourage people from getting too concerned about their personal finances or, or the investment markets as it relates to Ukraine, let us all, first of all, just agree that what's happening out there is atrocious, completely unacceptable. The humanitarian situation out there is it's it's jaw dropping. Um, so I just want to make sure that, you know, nobody confuses any attempt for me to dismiss the long term personal financial impact that we all may experience because of Ukraine. And I'll talk about gas prices a little bit. But, you know, I think that's kind of important because that's really where our focus should be. Uh, our firm donated ten thousand dollars to the humanitarian effort um, through the Red Cross yesterday. So this is obviously a big deal to us. Now, 
let me get to your question. Should we really be concerned from a personal financial standpoint? Long-term, probably not. I, I think that, you know, when, when, we, when we face um, situations in the economy like this, um, we tend to have a very short memory. We forget that there was a debt crisis in 2000 and, and, and uh, well, 2011, 2012. There was the COVID crisis, which people thought was going to bring the entire economy to its knees permanently uh, last year and the year prior. We had a complete and total global housing meltdown in 2008, the worst economic situation that we've experienced since the Great Depression. We had uh, the technology sector of the investment market completely collapsed in 2000 and 2001. We had a Japanese banking crisis in the 90s. We had Black Thursday in the 80s. We had Vietnam. We had Korea. We had World War II. And so at the end of the day, this too will pass. So I would, just, I would, I would say I would encourage people who uh, have a decent, solid, long-term financial plan to maintain discipline and not let this set of current uh, current events derail them. Now that of course is assuming uh, that our listeners do have a robust long-term financial plan. On the other hand, I would also add that there are definitely some short-term concerns. I mean, the investment markets have been incredibly volatile. We've got gas prices that appear to be totally through the roof. They appear to be record levels, but they're not at record levels. And maybe we'll talk about that a little bit later. But like anything else in life, a difficult time in business or growing pains for your business, or somebody has a medical condition that is curable, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a test of the family. You know, uh, all of these things, we have to work hard, we have to maintain discipline, and we have to get through it. Um, we are not going to be in World War three, four, and five, you know, for the next 10 years. Hopefully this will pass sooner than later, but this too will pass. Haley, you there? I think you're coming back. Maybe it's my, my app. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Yeah. Okay. I just lost you for a second. Go ahead. Keep going. You talked about okay. gas prices not being not being an all time uh, crazy high. And yeah, that's that's kind of a neat. Can you hear me? Okay, I think I'm good. Yeah, it may have been, it may have been yeah, good. we hear you. Okay, great. This is a really interesting topic. Um, the gas prices. So if it's okay, can I can I go on a rant for like a few minutes? There's so many different yeah, facets of the gas please. problem right now. Cool. All right. All right. Everybody, listen carefully. We should stop looking at the price per gallon of gas, it's actually fairly irrelevant. It is one metric that is a part of a lot of different things that make up the cost of travel. Really what you should be looking at is the cost per dollar, excuse me, the cost per mile driven. Let me repeat this just to make sure it's a pretty, it's a pretty simple concept. Don't look at what, a, what the dollar signs say the price of a gallon of gas is. What you should be thinking is, what is the cost to drive a mile? Or what does it cost for me to drive to work today versus what did it cost me to drive to work five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years and 20 years ago? That's what we call the real uh, cost of gas. And I'm not using the word real, quote unquote, in a casual way. The word real in finance is a vocabulary word, uh, real estate, 
Um, okay, I just uh, Haley sent me a message. I just want to read it really so quickly. So one of the things that I want to um, ask you about is what do you mean by like what it costs you? Do you mean in terms of like what you were earning? No, what I mean is actually how many dollars it costs to drive from point A to B, not the cost of gas. And I'll give you the two examples. The first thing is we have to factor in inflation into the cost of gas. Uh, you know, we are recording right now record level uh, cost of gasoline in terms of dollars, but you can't compare the cost of gas today to the cost of gas 10 years ago, 20 years, 30 years ago. You have to consider the effect of inflation. And people tend to naturally consider the effects of inflation for a lot of different types of products. For some reason, the cost of mail, for some reason, the cost of ice cream in movie theaters. But it's a fact that when you're dealing with societal staples, such as gasoline, people tend to forget the effects of inflation. So the first thing is, if you adjust the cost of gas every year for the last 50 years for inflation, you'll find that gas is not nearly at the record levels. But there's another thing that is even more important, which is the technological advances in automobiles and fuel efficiency. Because the reality is right now, on average, cars are about 400% more fuel efficient than they were 30 years ago. And so when you take in how much more fuel efficient cars have become, even in the last 15 years, and you consider the effects of inflation over time, the cost to drive a specific distance today is significantly lower than peak levels over the last 50 years. I've seen a few articles that have been written about this, but this is a really important concept because people are freaking out about the cost of gas and they're starting to make irresponsible decisions with their personal finances because they're so afraid of the cost of gas. But again, it's not really about the cost of gasoline. It's the cost of driving from point A to point B, all things considered today versus yesteryear. And I'm hopeful that giving this description to enough people may start to ease people's concerns. I guarantee everybody in this call spent a lot more money driving 10 miles 15 years ago than they are today, even with the cost of gasoline as high as it is. That's an interesting perspective. I don't even think that I've thought of it like that. So thanks for bringing, thanks for bringing that up. Um, what does that mean in terms of like, just like, I, I think what I'm hearing though is that people panic when they see numbers and they're not actually, and I've been talking about this a lot in my rooms, not relating to gas, not relating to finances, not relating to wealth, but relating to just data in general. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm in a position in my business where I'm, I analyze a lot of data. When you're in marketing, you have to analyze a lot of data or you really don't know if what you're doing is actually working. And sometimes you see really good results and you don't think that they're good because they're, you're like, oh, I only had 300 people show up on my this today. And, and, and then you do the data and you're like, wow, that was actually a really good statistic. If you go and measure about what you did a month ago or what you did a year ago or what you did five years ago or in relation to, you know, how many other things were going on that day or what was going on in the world or how many people signed up and how many people showed up live, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm a big data analytics geek and I don't necessarily do all the data analyzing myself. I have people on my team that do it, but I love to hear about it because I can't make decisions I can't make intelligent decisions if I don't have data in front of me. Sure, yeah, data is everything. I mean, they always say knowledge is power, right? And it's interesting that you said that you know you can look at data, and on the surface it might look you know questionable, or you might be disappointed. But when you start to put that data in context, um, you can oftentimes draw a much different conclusion. And so, and you talk about panic, by the way. 
panic is a real problem with personal finance. We do a lot of um, we do a lot of research and we write a lot of articles at More Wealth Management about behavioral finance. People oftentimes say things to me, you know, are you are you an investment advisor or are you like a personal psychologist? The reality is is that in order to be responsible with finances, you really have to understand how the human brain works on a on a deep psychological level. And the thing with gas prices, which is that that's one topic, is panic. Panic is a really bad thing. Here, let me give you another example. Um, the stock market right now is down a lot, right? It's down like, I don't know, something, you know, parts of the market are down. The S&P 500 is down almost 10%. I think it's down about 8%. It was down about 12%, uh, maybe a week or two ago. Uh, the NASDAQ was down more than 20%. But the reality is this. The domestic economy is very strong right now incredibly strong considering what we've gone through in the last two years but there is an uncertainty that's happening somewhere else in the world right now you know we're obviously in ukraine but the fact that it's ukraine is not relevant there is uncertainty around the world um and a different topic with gas prices gas prices didn't spike when russia invaded ukraine gas prices started to climb months ago when the possibility for russia to invade uh, ukraine became a reality and so what happens is people panic institutions panic, businesses panic, people panic. And that's why the price went up. Uh, uh, a lot of businesses that rely heavily on fuel, airlines, shipping businesses, for example, started to really stock up on their reserves. And that created an unnatural supply and demand imbalance. And the, re and, and the, the, the result of that is that gas prices, you know, at least on the surface, went through the roof. But panic is a really, really dangerous thing. Um, and data is everything. So for example, bringing us back to your first question, should people be concerned right now? No, people shouldn't be. For those of you who are uh, invested in the investment markets, whether it be real estate or, or it be stock market or bond market, what have you, I'm gonna use the stock market as an example because it's, it's the most easily accessible investment landscape. Um, when people get nervous, they tend to sell out at the wrong times. And what I don't wanna see people do right now is say to themselves, well, there's a global crisis. The stock market's down 10%. It could go a lot lower. I'm going to sell out of my investments right now to protect myself. That is a panic-driven decision. And the problem with that decision is, think about it. If the stock market's down 10% and you get out of it, what level does it have to get back to for you to be more comfortable? Probably being down less than 10%. Maybe when it gets back to even. So if you follow that route of travel, you've then allowed your investments to sell off by 10% and then you get out and then the market recovers and then you get back in. Well, at that point, you've sold out at a lower price than you bought back in and you've turned temporary volatility into a permanent loss. And the only reason that anybody would do that right now is panic. If you look at all of the data, Haley, back to what you said, statistics and data and financial metrics, what we see is that the consumer right now is very strong, especially in the United States. Uh, earnings from companies, they've kind of been moderate this earnings season. Uh, definitely there's been some question marks around some technology, but when I say moderate, I'm, I'm staying very, very uh, far away from bad. This has been a decent earnings season. So the consumer is spending money, uh, consumption is strong, businesses are doing just fine, 
And even though interest rates are rising, they still remain really low from a historic level, which means access to lending and credit is still there. Access to mortgages for home purchases more than still there. It's still very low, historically speaking. So all of the things that we would look at from an economic standpoint are really strong right now. And so there is no reason for anybody to dump their investments unless they panic. And okay, again, well, so, panic. Then I, so then I have a big question because I mean, like, you know, like with my portfolio, it went down. I, I mean, I don't want to really announce it on the stage right now. Like how much money went down? And I always say, oh, we lost. And you're like, you didn't lose anything, Haley. It's just on paper. But think about how much you've gained in the last, you know, 15, 16 years. Um, so people are panicking. So is that why what's happened has happened over the last couple of weeks? Yeah, well, I think there's two things that have gone on. So I guess we'll, we'll get into like the investments a little bit. Um, uh, the markets were, the markets performed outrageously during COVID, um, which is a whole other topic about panic and the markets diving and then them recovering, you know, like crazy. But uh, a lot of parts of the economy got a little overheated. You know, when people get excited about the market, they tend to really jump in and it, it kind of pushed the valuations higher than they should have been. So what we saw in the beginning of 2022 was a market coming down a little bit, almost to kind of like resettle into a valuation that's a little bit more reasonable. So, you know, people made 10, 15, 20 percent last year and the markets dropped maybe, let's say, 5 percent or 10 percent at the beginning of the year. It, it's just really kind of uh, neutralizing to a more reasonable valuation. So I think in the very beginning of the year, the markets came down because they were a little overheated. And then the Ukraine thing happened and people got really freaked out. And that's what caused the panic. But you made a really good point. Most people that are invested in the markets made a lot of money last year. Hey listeners, if you enjoy listening to Breakfast with Champions, we can bet you care about your daily routine. Do you want to know the secret to the perfect routine? It's the perfect morning. Glenn has written a free ebook called The Morning Five, five simple steps to an extraordinary morning. If you can transform your morning, you can transform your life. Head on over to themorning5.com to learn more about the five ways you can change the way you start your day. Why is it that whenever the markets sell off, everybody seems to forget how much money they've made in the recent past? And I'm not blaming anybody. This is a very natural human phenomenon. For example, it doesn't matter how much food uh, wild animals will eat in any given feeding uh, season. Towards the end of the feeding season, especially animals that hibernate, they are gonna load up on fat and protein and they're gonna hoard as much meat as they can because there is a, uh, there is a, a greed that is sort of a survival instinct. And so, uh, you know, brains, not just human brains, are programmed to live really, really very much in the moment. Uh, because no matter how much food a tiger may have eaten in the last few months, nobody knows if there's going to be food available for the next six months. So they'll continue to eat and eat and eat and nourish themselves. Well, the human brain is still an animal brain. You know, we may have been a developed species for a few thousand years, but we were an undeveloped species for millions of years. And that's just how our brain is programmed. And so you know, the markets could be up, you know, 30% in year one. And then in year two, it goes down percent and people not only freak out, but interestingly, they say, oh my God, my portfolio's down 10%. Well, in that example, I could say, no, it's not. It's up 20, whereas it used to be up 30. 
this is a very interesting mind game that I play with people because it does to some extent relieve the panic. If you're up 30 and then down 10, you can say to yourself, I lost 10%. Or you can say, oh, I was up 30, now I'm only up 20 over a two-year period. That's still pretty darn good. And by playing that mind trick, you're almost taking our human intellect and reprogramming the way you're approaching it so that you're comfortable with the circumstances so you don't do silly and irresponsible and potentially panic-driven, dangerous things. Does that make sense? Yeah, it totally makes sense. And I'm one of those people that goes into the panic because I think I have the money that I don't really have in my portfolio. Well, that's <laughs> that I very, I mean, that's, that's really common and also creates a potential issue when people are successful in their own right. They weren't necessarily handed, you know, uh, life on a silver platter. I mean, look, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to admit, Haley, I hope this doesn't offend you, but I'm, I am, I'm very privileged, right? I mean, I grew up with two parents instead of one or none. Um, I grew up knowing that I would always have a meal on the table. Sometimes it was fantastic. Sometimes it was gross. Our mother is a very creative cook. Um, but I, I never had to worry about sleeping in a car. I never had to worry about whether or not there was going to be dinner on the table for me. And that alone is privilege. It's one of the reasons I do so much in charity because I had opportunities in life that a lot of people didn't have. But I never took any money from mom and dad to start my business, and neither did you. We created our businesses from nothing. And when you do that, we also know psychologically and statistically people are far more emotionally driven by the prospect of losing a dollar than gaining a dollar. And this is scientifically proven. Actually, the opportunity to earn a dollar Will, will generate less of an emotional response than the possibility of losing a dollar. And so that plays into what I was saying before. It doesn't really matter how much money you made in the past or how much, whether it's your earned income or it's your, your business or it's money in the investment markets. The only thing your brain really uh, hangs on to uh, perpetually is the possibility of losing money. And this is a concept that is far more prevalent in people who have built their own wealth than people who have been given wealth. And in so much as your audience is primarily people that are successful and have begun or have uh, had a lot of success in building their own wealth, this makes this concept much, much more difficult to deal with. I would say, however, if we are present in terms of how we think and we understand how our minds work, we oftentimes can uh, uh, intellectualize uh, the types of thoughts that we're thinking to hopefully avoid, you know, those panic driven responses. But you're right. A lot of people are like, you know, I, I, it doesn't even matter how much I made last year. All I'm, all I'm concerned right now is losing money this year. It's very, very common. I want to give you a fun, just psychological fact as well. This has nothing to do with our conversation, but sort of everything to do with our conversation. So this is personal and I hope you don't mind me saying it, <laughs> but I was having, I interviewed mom and dad a couple of weeks ago because I'm doing some deep work into my own epigenetics. And I, you and I have been talking about this a little bit, just like diving into our personalities and diving into our traits and noticing and acknowledging like what we have inherited through genealogy and epigenealogy and what we want to pass down to our own children's. And one of the things I actually found out is that I had this, I had this thought that mom and dad had a lot more money than they had. Now, dad did start to make some really good investments when I was in um, junior high and high school, but growing up, we did not have money and they did not know whether they were going to pay their bills. <laughs> they did not know whether there was going to be food on the table. At least that's the conversation that I got from them. And sometimes, yes, mom has a tendency to exaggerate, but I had a feeling because there was comfort in the home. And I say this because you brought up the situation of being privileged and having two, two parents and, and having food on the table. They made it seem 
like we had more than we had for a very long time. And I know that you're younger than me. And so maybe by the time wait, wait, you had that, people, I think you had that backwards. They made it seem like they had less than they really had. No, they made it seem to us like they had more than we had. Oh, to, to, to drive that level of comfort you're saying. Yeah. And I don't think ah, that they yes. meant to do it intentionally. I think that they were just believers that there would be more, there would be more food on the table. There would be more money in the bank and that belief system. And this is really important. And I know that, you know, Glenn and I talk about this in his champion circle. He talks about it with the students. Um, Glenn is the host of this room by, right by, by the way, in case you don't know, he's sitting in the top left-hand corner. Glenn, I'm not sure if you're here right now, but this is my brother sitting next to me on the top right hand corner. And um, I'm, I'm the brother about... from the other mother. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we talk about we talk about having the vision of believing what is possible. And I do believe that mom and dad both had that very strong mindset of that, that they could be successful. They both came from nothing. Their parents came from nothing. In fact, they were immigrants. Like some of our some of our grandparents literally came over to the United States with a suitcase in their hand and nothing else. So, you know, I I I say this because I think it's important for people to know that, you know, privileged means yes, having a parent and or two. Privilege means having food on the table. But when you when you have a belief that money is going to be there and you can create it. And I'm gonna throw a link on the on the up on the and change the link here for a second. If you guys want to check out my brother Matthew, I just put his the link to his website at the top because I think it's really important to note that when we have a belief that we can create something out of nothing and we can watch what other people are doing or hang around with really smart people, people who are doing cool things like Glenn or or my brother Matthew over here on the on the many people in the room here, David Spizek and Orian, Dr. Anise and Lolita and Angel and Ashley, all of the people that could go down the speakers chat right now. When you're hanging around with people who are who have a belief, when you're hanging out with people who believe more is possible, you tend to you tend to inherit those traits of yes, I can do this. So you guys really quickly grab my brother's link at the top of the stage if you wanna if you wanna check it out. And then I'm gonna actually post something that I'm doing today. It's a two day event we started yesterday. I know some of you were there, and I know some of you friggin' loved it. It was a two it's a two day summit, and I have a lot of really incredible people. Not my brother this time, he's here with you today, but other people that are, Glenn was with me last time, that uh, are teaching us really fun, creative, awesome, uh, strategic ways to build their businesses right now. All right, so Matt, I didn't mean to interrupt you on that if you've got something else that you wanna. Yeah, no, I think you, you make an, another excellent point as you always do, that's why you have such a dedicated audience. Um, in terms of encouragement and being around the right people and how that plays into privilege, um, because, you know, first of all, when you were in junior high, I was five years old. <laughs> so there's no doubt that I think that mom and dad were more comfortable by the time I got into junior high. I mean, you know, dad was out of the Navy and still, you know, very, very, very young in his career, you know, when you were in junior high. But in any case, the idea that, you know, we had two loving parents that were uh, pushing us to be all that we can be and encouraging us. Um, and giving all the love and support that they could possibly offer to us, that in itself is a form of privilege. Uh, people use the word privilege in a very positive, but also in a very negative way these days. But I think it is important to understand that, you know, if you are raised in an environment and raise your children in an environment of love and encouragement, those children already have a step ahead of a lot of people in this country and a lot of people in this world who don't have loving parents or don't have parents at all. It's something from a philanthropic and a community standpoint that I think that I encourage everybody I speak to to remember. Um, and in terms of uh, you know, uh, 
the ability to be around smart people, I, I mean, this is so important. It's, it's very obvious to a lot of us that when you surround yourself with people who have negative opinions, who are always looking down on society and the community and spend more time criticizing others than helping others and more, ta- more time looking for the problems with our community than looking for ways to build and strengthen the community can have a huge impact on your personal success, not just in business, but also in life. And it, it's weird that I would have so much experience of that in that with regards to wealth management. But again, what we know about what drives people psychologically and financially, people that are driven and surround themselves with smart people make better financial decisions. They wind up putting themselves in fewer precarious situations and they wind up ultimately being much, much more wealthy both financially, but also uh, in terms of mind and body. And we see that every day, not just in the charity work that we do, but even with the clients that we work with. I mean, you know, we work with some very wealthy, wealthy families that I'm sorry to say, maybe they're not the most encouraging. Maybe they're not, not the most um, um, influential in the community. And you can see they're, they're, they may be wealthy, but their wealth grows a lot slower. And so anyway, that's a little bit uh, you know, off the topic, but yes, that, that privilege is really important. Surrounding yourself with smart people to make good financial and good business decisions is absolutely imperative. And I think that that's what we all really loved about this app, you know, just being able to be on here and meet people from literally all over the world and develop relationships and collaborations and just sit here and listen. I, you know, I speak in this, on this uh, segment every Wednesday from eight to nine o'clock mountain time, which is today. And it's right now, it's 835 right now. And it's the only segment that I have in the room weekly. I have two other rooms that I host on my own in my own healthy, uh, in my own Habit Hackers Tuesdays and Thursdays afternoon. But I, I wake up and I turn the app on because I like to listen to Glenn. And I like to listen to the people that he's chosen to run the rooms and moderate the rooms. And I like to listen to their guests. Like when you surround yourself with people like this, it does make a difference. All right, let's go back to finance for a second because I want to yeah. talk about like what the most important thing is in finance. Mm. And I also, I, I, I'm interested also in the audience hearing your transition about how you moved your career to personal fi- uh, finance. Like when you know you graduated from college and then you, I, I remember you working as an EMT for a while and then before you got into Morgan Stanley and Morgan Stanley, um, uh, Smith Barney, like I, I, I'm wondering if you had like this ideal person because I talk a lot about ideal client avatars, like who you have, uh, you, you know, who's your vision of working? Who do you who do you have a vision of working with? And right. I'm curious, um, not only what the most important thing in finance is, but who is the ideal client? And do you think about that? Is that something that you do? Like, what was your journey in getting there? Wow, that was that was a lot to ask. Two completely different topics. Do you want me to hit uh, some best practices yeah, in finance or my first. career for mm-hmm. do that. Okay. So I'm going to try to do um, a few quick ones, and a lot of them are unrelated. But um, let's see here. The first thing is I want to talk briefly about probably the most important thing in personal finance and what makes people wealthy. The first thing is get control. Every single person that we work with, every client fills out an expense or in a budget worksheet every other year. Uh, these are clients that we manage eight figure and close to nine figure estates. And they still fill out a budget every year because at the end of the day, this is really important. The most, the most influential aspects of a financial plan or a business plan is simply what's coming in and what's going out, period. There are so many other attributes to financial planning, but most Americans have a very poor concept of what their lifestyle actually costs. 
If I ask somebody, what do you think you spend per month? They'll take about two minutes and they'll think about their mortgage, their utilities, maybe auto gas, but they're not thinking about how much money they spend every day on lunch or Kathy. how much money they spend on landscaping. Avocado toast. Avocado <laughs> toast, right? The reality is in our experience, when people give us a preliminary idea of what their lifestyle costs, they're usually off by about 40%, 40%. And so they say, okay, well, I'm making $100 a year and I'm spending $80 a year. I should therefore save $20 a year. And how, you know, and, and if I save that for enough years, blah, 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 blah. But what actually happens is they are earning $100 a year and they're spending $98 a year. And they only have room to save $2. And they can never figure out, why can I not catch up to myself? And the number one reason that that is, is because people have an, a, a surprisingly horrible idea of what their lifestyle costs. So what's the solution? I would encourage everybody to go to mint.com or some type of software that can track your expenses. And it takes some elbow grease. If you use one of these softwares, it means you've got to log on once a month and you've got to go through all of the things that you spent money, money on over that month. And you have to make sure they're correctly categorized so that you now know, oh, okay, how much money do I spend on avocado toast or dining in general or entertainment or sports uh, events or uh, beauty affairs or you know, whatever it is. Um, that's the number one thing in personal finance. And it doesn't matter where you live on the socioeconomic spectrum, whether you make 30 grand a year or you make 3 million a year, it is the number one problem in not just America, but with all of the people that are introduced to my firm before we accept them as clients. So that's the first thing. Another thing- Can you just I repeat that one more time? Do you do what before you accept them? Uh, it, when we meet new families and we're looking for, you know, issues with their planning or, you know, we're just doing financial modeling, the number one problem that we find um, ultimately comes from a lack of understanding of what their lifestyle costs. And again, it doesn't matter whether they make 30 grand a year or 3 million a year. It's always the number one issue is people don't have a good grasp on what their lifestyle costs. And once we can figure that out from there, I mean, you know, we, we can do anything we need to do in terms of, you know, a forecasting and modeling and things like that. But people have to get an idea of what they spend. And one more comment, since you brought it up again, a, a lot of Wait, people. Why do, you, why do you think it's so hard for people to grasp that, though? Because that's something that I've been playing with. Like, I don't know, maybe I'm just a nerd. But ever since I was like in college, I used to write down and I, because I like to do things like, you know, get my nails done or, or, you know, get my avocado toast, although avocado toast wasn't a thing back then. But I used to literally write down every single item I used to like to spend uh, well, money we, on. We, there's actually, there's an answer to your question and people don't like to admit it, but the answer is through research and research and research and surveys, the actual answer is people don't, don't want to know what they spent. Now, Haley, you're unique. You know, you, you, I mean, this is not a problem with everybody, you know, but um, the fact of the matter is we live in a consumption based society. We live in a consumption based economy. That's what capitalism is. Um, and so everywhere you go every single day, you're being bombarded with overt and subliminal messages to buy things, buy things, buy things. I mean, you drive down the highway 20 miles and you pass 50 billboards 
Um, you know, you go on the internet and you're looking at uh, ads on every web page. You go on YouTube. I mean, I'm a premium subscriber, so I don't have ads on YouTube. But most people, you go on YouTube and ads and Facebook and ads. and It's buy things everywhere. You know, you go to the grocery store and you get everything you need. You walk up to the checkout counter and there's more things, you know, because hopefully people will do. Well, what's that called? Like when you like buy at the last minute, like an urge. I forget what it's called. Anyway, um, so. Impulse impulse buy. Yes. Thank you. I mean, even impulse, like it's not enough. I got to spend $300 at the grocery store that I got to go up the counter. And and now I'm being like influenced to buy like, you know, peanut shoes. Anyway, um, people want and want and want. Part of it is our peanut shoes. What? All right. Oh, they're so good. I've been eating peanut shoes since. Yeah, man. Dude, you had me at peanut shoes. (laughs) Wait, wait, peanut shoes and peeps. I love the fact that Easter's coming around, even though I'm Jewish. I love peeps. Anyway, um, so uh, people, we, we want to consume. There's a certain sense of greed that, especially in America, we have. It, it is what it is. And uh, most people, through psychological research, we find, don't really want to know how much they spend because they know in their hearts they overspend. And they don't necessarily want to keep track of it because they don't have to worry about having to say, no, I'm not going to buy that today. That really is the number one purchase, uh, the, number, the number one reason um, that, that people don't have a good grasp. The other thing is, and, and understand this, the banking system in America is so totally broken and there is so much influence to create a society where we are financially uneducated. Financial literacy, or I should say the lack of financial literacy in the United States of America is a real freaking problem. And that that lack of financial uh, intelligence has been driven largely by the banking industry. For example, you, know, you see a credit card advertisement, zero percent for the first six months. But what you don't realize is after the six months, if you don't pay your bill, they're charging you interest rates on your credit card that is illegal in most developed countries. It's everywhere. So anyway, there's a lot of, uh, of, of uh, reasons why we're not very good at keeping track of our own finances and understanding what your lifestyle costs is numero uno, but it requires some elbow grease. You need a tracking system. You need to be filling out an expense worksheet on a regular basis, or you need to be downloading your statements from your, from your bank and reviewing them. Or I think that a website like mint.com is fabulous. But even if you use mint.com and you link up your accounts, it's not fully automated. You still have to go in there once a month and maybe spend two hours and make sure everything is categorized. And look, at the end of the day, yeah, a lot of people are lazy and a lot of people you know, uh, don't necessarily get around to it. Fortunately, this audience is not exactly what I would consider lazy. So uh, that, that, that's, that is the numero uno in terms of best practices in finance. Um, all right. The next that, question was just a little bit more about like you getting into what you're doing now and like, like focusing on your, like who is the person you wanted to focus on? Why are you doing what you're doing right now? What drives yeah. you? Be- before I do that, I just want to do one more quick thing. And I want, this is about investment volatility folks. Um, the, those of you who manage aggressive portfolios, you have to understand that volatility will kill your investment returns possibly more than you think they will. And, and I want to just do a really brief mathematical equation. Follow me here. If you have a portfolio and you're up 10% in the first year and you're down 10% in the second year, most people think that that portfolio is going to break even and it won't. If you have $100 and you're up 10% in the first year, you end that year with $110. If you then lose 10% in the following year, you lose 10% of 110, which is $11 
which brings you from 110 down to 99. So in this example, you have a portfolio that's up 10% in the first year, it's down 10% in the second year, that mathematically averages zero, but in the example I put forth, you've actually lost a dollar. You would have been better off not investing at all. The point of this is the more volatile your portfolio is, the more this effect happens and just being more aggressive doesn't mean that you're gonna make more money. You have to make more money to first compensate for the volatility. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of brush over this because I know Haley want to get onto another topic. For those of you who understood what I just said, keep this in mind when you're designing your portfolio. And if you don't understand what, you, what I just said, I encourage you to go to my website and email my staff and we'll walk you through this. It's a very, very important concept because a lot of people get themselves into a lot of trouble with portfolios that are more aggressive than they should really want to bear. Okay, that said, how did I want- If you want to stick on the topic, if you, I mean, we can still talk about, like I've got a couple of other questions about how to be wealthy actually is. If you want to stick on the topic of wealth, I'm happy to no, I'm, 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 let me move on a little bit because, you know, one of the things I talk about a lot, by the way, you were broke, broken up a little bit there. Can everybody still hear me clearly? You yes, we can. Matthew. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. If we use, I want to talk about actually where I am because um, I think that the Wall Street industry is totally broken. In fact, I've said this many times before. If you use the word pollution in the most broad sense, I think that Wall Street has probably polluted uh, modern society more than any industry ever in humankind, including the oil industries. Um, so I love talking about where I am because I almost want to discourage people from using the big bank system. Um, so I started Morgan Stanley, um, had a decent early career, uh, was exposed to, to some, um, I'll say, circumstances that I wasn't comfortable with in terms of how Morgan Stanley made decisions. I was very lucky. In the very beginning of my career, I was actually kind of pulled up the ladder instead of climbed it. Um, I had a specific expertise that a group was looking for, and I kind of got pulled in, um, and I just kind of like I went with the momentum. So I wound up being like an associate vice president of Morgan Stanley, which is like one of the biggest banks in the world. I was an associate vice president of that firm by like my late 20s. So I, I, it was like, whoa. But being still in my late 20s, I was still really young and really fresh, and I didn't necessarily really understand the way, didn't really understand the way the world worked, but also being privy to some very questionable decision-making standards. And so I decided that I just didn't want to be with a firm that big that was making decisions that were, you know, maybe a little bit more, you know, company centric instead of client centric. And so I left Morgan Stanley. I went to Smith Barney, which was a, still a national firm, but, you know, it was, it was smaller, it was more of a regional feel. And unfortunately, uh, in, I guess in 2009, uh, as Haley said before, Morgan Stanley bought that company. So I basically wound up at, at Morgan Stanley a second time. And now, now I'm in like my 30s, and now I really understand the way the world works. And now the decisions after 2008 were being made, in my opinion, I think they were even worse. In fact, we all know these days that the big banks were the reason that 2008 happened in the first place. So I decided I was going to leave the big bank, big Wall Street environment, and I was going to start a small firm on my own, 
which I did in 2013. And the reason I wanted to do that is I wanted to do what I could do for a living well, but I wanted to do it under my terms. And I didn't want anybody telling me that, you know, you should be buying your clients these investments or these products, or you should be charging your clients this, or you need to do that. And this is what's best for the firm. The fact of the matter is I was like, I don't really care what's best for the firm. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm an investment manager. Like if I do my job well, I'm going to make a decent living. And uh, I don't really care about what is most profitable for the firm. And that right there has been like the concept of my firm since its genesis. Um, we do not advertise. We do not market ourselves. Uh, the only way to become a client is really through referral or invitation. Um, we have, we've, I can't, the gentleman that was on the, uh, in the room before said he's never lost a staff member in 20 years. Well, I, I, that's, a, that's, a, that's a bold statement. I can't say that, but what I can say is, other than some very, very unique circumstances, um, I've never had a staff member electively leave for any other reason than a health-related issue. Um, our firm is, we're like the anti-Wall Street, Wall Street firm. I, I, for those of you who are Star Wars fans, I, 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 the analogy I use is like the big banks are like um, uh, the dark side and us small, independent mom and pop shops, we're the rebel forces. I've, I've developed a lot of enemies in Wall Street because the way that we do business is better. People recognize it. It's also a more expensive way to do business because we don't really put profits first. We put people first. In fact, we don't even put clients first. We put our staff first. Somebody made a great quote uh, a few years ago that I really loved. It was clients don't come first. My staff comes first because if I take care of my staff, my staff will take care of the clients. And I think there's something to be said about that. But the, 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 the reason, or I say the way that I found myself in the position, Haley, that I'm in is because I just didn't want to be part of the problem. I wanted to be part of the solution. And I don't think that more wealth management is going to change the world. But I can say confidently that with all of the community work that we do in turn with working with low income families, uh, the work that I do in these think tanks, I'm part of a national think tank uh, from that's sponsored by Investment News in New York, uh, where we have been for years looking for ways to execute to increase financial literacy in America, sort of uncover all the things that are so terrible that hurt smaller people and they don't even realize it. And so I don't think that, you know, me, myself and my firm, we're going to save the world. But in small pieces, if all of us can have that idea together, we really can make a difference. And I'll give everybody in this call two ways that you can make that difference in a small way. Number one, if you have an opportunity to move to a smaller local bank or credit union or a smaller local, uh, not local, I shouldn't say that, but a, a smaller investment firm that is independent of the wirehouses, independent of Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch, you know, uh, Bank of America, uh, Goldman Sachs. If you can steer clear of that, you'll probably wind up being taken care of better. Your fees will probably be lower. Your performance will probably be better. And you'll be supporting a small firm instead of supporting the big giant Wall Street conglomerates. The other thing which is even more, more impactful, and folks, if you're not doing this already, you're either not thinking smartly about your investments or you don't care about the world. Flat out, you must be socially responsible with your investments. Period. End of story. There is a misconception that if you want to design a socially responsible investment portfolio, then you must sacrifice investment returns. And that is not true. 
I believe that that is a misnomer that has been spread by the big banks because in order to design and maintain socially responsible portfolios is expensive. We subscribe to like a dozen different research companies and four of the research providers we use give us information that's only for social responsibility. It's really got nothing to do with the, uh, uh, the worthiness of a particular investment from a profitability standpoint. It's only about uh, the social responsibility and environmental, social and governance of these companies. So we're getting like- I don't know what that means, Matt. What's that? What, is it, what does that mean? I don't know what that means. A socially responsible portfolio. I don't know what that means. Okay, sure. So what that means is you would be vetting so, so take a traditional stock portfolio if you're buying individual stocks. Uh, putting in your, a socially responsible um, element would be that you are screening these companies to eliminate companies that are socially irresponsible. So for example, companies that have a much larger carbon footprint than their uh, peers. Companies that uh, have, for example, uh, a history of gender discrimination or racial discrimination lawsuits. Um, let's see, a company that might be doing business with uh, countries they shouldn't be doing business with or uh, financial institutions that are known to you know, turn a blind eye away from um, questionable financial transactions. Uh, Deutsche Bank has been blamed for this over and over and over and over again. So socially responsible investment portfolio is just trying to build an investment portfolio where you're not investing in evil companies. Gotcha. And gotcha. That, that's what that is. And, and, you know, for a long time over the last 30 years, there were social advocates that just didn't want their money to be going to those places, but they recognize that it's hard to do and you kind of have to give up something here and there. But these days, with attention to social aspects of the community. For example, I mean, how many people really want to invest in a company that's known to have racial discrimination lawsuits on a regular basis? Like, you just don't want to be a part of that. But there's a deeper issue. Those repetitive lawsuits are incredibly expensive. And those lawsuits, because they're expensive, crimp on those companies' profitability. So I can actually make an argument that I don't want to invest in those companies because I don't want to invest in companies that are wasting hard-earned revenue dollars on lawsuits that shouldn't be there in the first place. I would rather invest in a company that never has those kind of lawsuits because their profit line will be higher. And with attention- Well, there's also a huge message that you're making when you're investing your time, you're investing your relationships, you're investing your money, your finances into any ad adventure or, or company that is not doing the right thing. And I think that, you know, I don't want to change the topic, but I mean, you know, we've talked about this so many times in, in this room and other rooms, like even like, when you're when you're deciding to affiliate for a specific company and and, and make a little money on the side because you're recommending somebody's somebody else's product or somebody else's courses or somebody else's this or somebody else's that like are you aligned with the message putting put out there can you stand behind it authentically can you be in truth and intimacy with yourself and authenticity to actually have your word your name your word it's the only name you have it's the only word you have be in truth and speak from a place of compassion and love and, and honesty and most importantly, integrity. 
Yeah, and that's that's a cornerstone of of what more wealth management stands stands for. And there's no way that I could have done it to the extent that I wanted to if I was working for a you know a big Wall Street bank. And by doing it our way here, you know, socially responsible investing, it's it's not a choice here. It's not an opt-in type of situation. That's how we do business because that's how we believe in the world. But interestingly, there's also a financial element to it, and it, we're not motivated by the financial element. We're motivated by the community element, but because over the last decade and a half, there's been such a movement towards aligning your business with your personal beliefs that a lot of money is flowing in that direction. And what's happening is that more people are investing this way and less people are investing carelessly. And the stocks are doing better for companies that are social responsible because their companies are more sustainable. People talk about sustainability and usually people immediately think of renewable energy. That is a form of sustainability. But the word sustainability just means that, you know, I can sustain myself, right? I mean, that's, that's what the word means. And a company that is not bothered by expensive lawsuits and fines and regulatory sanctions because of all the bad things that are that kind of a company that's got to deal with that mess is flat out less sustainable than a company that is going to take a little bit of time and a little bit more money to make sure they're doing things safely, doing things according to regulations, not polluting the air, not polluting the environment, not being racist. And so I, I, I always explain to people that get concerned about social responsible investing from a financial standpoint, it's like you want to align your investments with your belief system, but there's a financial motivation as well. And as we're getting close to the hour, I would say this to everybody, look, you know, any individual here that, that does, that transitions their portfolio into a social responsible portfolio, you yourself are not going to change the world. But if everybody does it, we're talking about trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars moving in that direction, which inevitably will force socially irresponsible companies to make a change. Because if they don't, no one will invest in them, their stock will fall, and they'll be out of business. So what we're seeing now is we're seeing companies who, in the past, really this hasn't really been a thing for them. Maybe they're not necessarily motivated by the cultural standpoint, but they're being forced because of the financial, uh, the financial aspect. So I think this is a big deal. This is the new way of the future. It's a more profitable, it can be a more profitable way to manage your investments. But the, the more important thing is, like Haley, like you said, it's, it's aligning your personal belief system and the things that you care about in your heart with what you're doing with your money. And everybody, lastly, everybody should be donating no less than three-tenths of 1% of their earned income to charity every year. Frankly, I think everybody should be doing at least 1%, but that's a conversation. If you're wealthy enough to invest, it means you're wealthy enough to care for people who are unfortunate enough to not be able to invest. What Warren Buffett said, uh, the, the top, it, it is the top 1% responsibility to look after the other 99. And people, if you earn more than $150,000 a year, you're in the top 10% of income earners in America. That's hard to believe, but that's the stat. 150,000 puts you basically in the top 10% of income earners in America. Matthew, thank you. You guys, can we just give it up for my brother, please? Open the mics, open the mics, give it up for my brother, you guys. He is
Thank you for joining us on Breakfast with Champions. If you want to catch the live version, you can follow us on Clubhouse and listen from 5 a.m. to 11 a.m. Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, Saturday 6 to noon, and Sundays with our 111 Sunday service. Make sure you're keeping up with Breakfast with Champions and getting yourself a seat at the table.